Welcome to Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. Just as one revoices a chord, Revoicing the Future creates a completely new perspective on the invaluable notes that make up the whole. It will uplift women's voices in the music products industry, which have earned their time to be the root of the chord. Once a month, you can catch productive and valuable conversations with women working in manufacturing, retail, the nonprofit sector, music education, touring, and overall women who inspire us. Without further ado, let's get started. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Revoicing the Future. I'm your host, Natalie Morrison. Thank you for tuning in. As always, it's been so long. I feel like I haven't sat behind a microphone like this and recorded an intro for all of you in a really, really long time. So hi, we recorded an intro for the live uh, panel episode from last month, but we just finished our live from NAM series. So we're kind of back to our regularly scheduled programming, which just means I'm recording an episode every month. Um, and it's not pre-recorded like we did back in June, but just a couple of reflection points that I wanted to kind of chat through since it is just me and the microphone. I'm going to speak on behalf of Stephanie and Julia as well, because I feel like we're all on the same page on this and we've had these discussions and reflections together. So we were just so honored and honestly speechless from the response that we got from everyone who came up to us to talk about how much the podcast has had an impact on them. And it's one thing when you start a podcast during a pandemic and you don't get to see people in person for a very long time, which happened with us. This NAM show was like the first time that a bunch of us got to be in person and meet people for the very first time, especially the ones that you've made deep connections with over Zoom. So for us to have this experience literally two years after we published the very first episode was truly eye-opening, and I'm still pretty speechless by it. I'm having a really hard time putting words to my thoughts because you just don't know how things are going to be received. One thing when you see what people say online or messages that people send to you online, but for people to take the time out of their day to come up to you and just talk about how the podcast has affected their lives, it's really inspiring and it's motivating for us to keep doing what we're doing. And it's just a very reassuring thing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to everyone who came up and who's constantly supporting us. And we're just so eternally grateful. So if you're inspired, tell your friends and your colleagues and other people who you might think would want to listen to us because we're really excited for what's to come and we have a lot up our sleeve. So get excited. The other thing that I wanted to talk about before we dive into the episode today is by the time this goes live, a few days later will be the third annual Women of NAM Leadership Summit, which is super exciting. And there are 17 emerging female leaders who will be participating in the summit. And I just wanted to give them a shout out. And I don't like doing this for myself, but I am honored and humbled to be one of those 17 women attending the summit next week. So if you're listening to this and you are also attending the summit, I'm so excited to meet you and I can't wait to learn and grow as a collective. I just, I've heard from so many people who've done this already that it's a life-changing experience. So I'm ready for it and I hope you are too. But I wanted to give a personal shout out to 
everyone who will be attending. And I would feel so terrible if I butchered their names wrong. So I'm just going to say their first name, where they work. And then you can go over to the Women of Nam Instagram page and you can get a deeper, closer look at who will be attending. So I don't want to insult anyone by butchering their last name. So this is how I'm going to do it. The participants this year are Tanya from West Music, Laura from Sure, Kayla from Music and Arts, Michelle from Beacock Music, Catherine from Bertrand's Music, Jessica from Menchie Music, Jordan from Fender, Katie from The Music Shop, Aaron from Maple Leaf Strings, Kristen from Hyde Music, Gail from High Strung Violins and Guitars, Taya from Artists and, Amanda from Ernie Williamson Music, Stacy from Swanson Consulting Group, Samantha from Quinlan and Fabish Music Company, and Amanda from Universal Audio. So excited to spend the next few days with you all, and congratulations. This is a great honor. Let's get into today's episode, or this month's episode. I'm so excited for it. I had the incredible opportunity to sit down with Michelle Moog Kusa, who is the executive director of the Bob Moog Foundation. She's awesome. I'm just going to say it. We talk a lot about her journey and experience coming into this industry, why she started the foundation, how her life changed, knowing that this was the path that she wanted to take in her life. I don't want to give anything away because her story is so inspiring. And you're literally going to hear from someone who learned how to build a business from the bottom up and basically do it on her own for a very long time. So if you want to learn more about the Bob Moog Foundation, all the information is in the link and description in the bio. And I'm speechless on this one too, because she's just incredible. And her story is really unique. And I'm just going to leave it at that. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'll see you next time. Hi, Michelle. It is so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So we always love to kickstart our conversations and get to know you. So who is Michelle? What was your career journey path like? And aside from work, like what brings you joy in life? What do you do outside of your job? Oh, those are a few big questions. <laughs> Let's start with my career journey. I went to school at George Washington University and got my bachelor's in political science with the goal of becoming an attorney for the Environmental Protection Agency. Wow. But instead, I wound up uh, moving to West Africa to be with the person who would become my husband of now 29 years. And my life took a totally different turn. I lived in Senegal, West Africa for four and a half years. My first, my first child was born there. I worked with my husband a bit while I was there. 
he was the foreman of the limestone quarry. So I worked in a limestone quarry, which is really fascinating. Wow. West Africa. Yeah, there's something most people don't know about me. (laughs) And we decided to return to the United States, but neither of us really had jobs. I had a political science degree. Uh, My husband is not particularly a big city person. So we decided to settle in Asheville, North Carolina, where both my parents lived. And we decided that I would start some kind of small business that I could run and be with my son at the time and later with my daughter as well. I started a artful gift boutique in 1998 in downtown Asheville. And really the goal of that was, of course, to earn an income, but it was to be able to set my own schedule and be able to stay home with my children as much as I needed to. That was really important for me. And I ran that gift store with great success until 2005. And that's when, again, my life completely shifted. My father passed away of an aggressive brain tumor in August of that year. And seven weeks prior to his passing, we set up a page on the carryingbridge.com to basically let 40 people in the world know how he was doing. We had a password up to communicate with those people. But one of them posted a link to the page on a synthesizer chat group, and we got a thousand hits on the page in a day. Wow. So we put a password up on the site because we were trying to protect my father's privacy. It was a very delicate time, as you might imagine. Of course. And my dad surprised us a couple of days later and said, you know what? Take the password down. Just let him come. Uh. Which I was really struck by. So we did. And in seven weeks, 60,000 people logged on to that page. 4,000 people left testimonials about how Bob Moog had either changed or transformed their lives. And it was really through that that the inspiration for the Bob Moog Foundation was born. Because my father didn't share a lot about his career with us as we were growing up. I like to say I only met Bob Moog when my father died at 37 years old. Wow. And what is really stunningly beautiful is it's the world who taught me about Bob Moog. They taught me about Bob Moog through their stories of inspiration. And I would sit and read these stories and basically cry (laughs) because (laughs) it was like there was this huge dawning for me of who Bob Moog was to the rest of the world. He was dad to me, but he was something very different and something really powerful to the rest of the world. And at that point, all of us knew that we wanted to do something to carry that inspiration forward. So my younger brother, Matthew, actually had the idea to start a foundation. About a month after my father passed away, he stepped back and said he was just too busy to run it. He had he kind of started it, but he was too busy to run it right. and and asked someone else to take over. And I was the only one who stepped forward. You know, here I am with two little kids, a five-year-old and a 10-year-old and a gift store that I'm running. And eventually what happened is I started off as a volunteer. I had no experience in nonprofits. I worked from my basement for a year and then I became the formal executive director in 2007. And the learning curve was extremely steep. And it was a more complex endeavor than I could have ever imagined. 
but I have always seen such enormous potential for this foundation from the time that I tapped into that inspiration that Bob Moog kind of unwittingly left behind. And I made a commitment not to give up until the foundation has reached that potential. Wow. So that is how I got to where I am today. That's such a beautiful story. Who would have thought like you were in West Africa to now here you are running this incredible foundation, like, and you learned how to run a foundation, like all at the same time. Like that's wild. Yeah. And I will say that there have been many, many difficult times. I mean, I've been at this now for 16 years. So, you know, with any job that you've been with for 16 years, there are likely going to be difficult times. There have been many difficult times here. And there have been times that they've been so difficult that, you know, my family members have encouraged me to give up. This was in the earlier days when it was just very hard getting it off the ground. And I really reached very deeply into my inspiration, what I have gleaned from Bob Moog over all these years and from my dad watching my dad through his career, because his career was not easy either. And if there's one thing that I have really embraced from my father's career, that is, Mm. don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep going. And he has really inspired me so many times not to give up. So I just think that his example of what true commitment to an endeavor looks like to help me get to where I am. That's amazing. Let's dive into this a little bit more. I want to talk through what your day-to-day as an executive director for the foundation is for someone who might be new to learning about um, nonprofit operations. So what are your main responsibilities? Well, there's some kind of high-level responsibilities. I'm responsible for conceptualizing and upholding the vision of the foundation for executing the mission through our projects, Dr. Bob Sound School, the Bob Moog Foundation Archives, and the Moogseum, all three mm-hmm. big projects. I oversee a staff of seven people, and I oversee all of the finances, including doing all of the fundraising. I also am responsible for maintaining relationships all over the world from supporters and stakeholders of all kinds. Wow. <laughs> That's- that's not a lot or anything. Like no, no big deal. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure <laughs> at all. So if people aren't familiar with the Bob Moog Foundation, what's the main mission? The main mission is essentially it's kind of a mirror reflection of Bob Moog's legacy itself. And that is to inspire people of all ages through the intersection of science, music, technology, and innovation. That's amazing. Yeah. And as I mentioned briefly, we have three projects that we execute to carry that mission forward. The first is Dr. Bob Song School, which is a 10-week interactive science curriculum that we teach here in Nashville to 3,000 kids every year. We teach them about the science of sound through music and technology. This is a curriculum that we have been working on for about 10 years, and we are on the verge of beginning to expand nationwide. It's something we've wanted to do for a very long time. We just haven't had the resources to do so, but we're getting very, very close. The other thing is with the Bob Moog Foundation Archives, which is a expansive collection of historical materials that ranges from 
prototypes and schematics to photos and vintage catalogs and everything in between. And we have about 10,000 different items that we are protecting, preserving, and sharing with researchers and other museums. And those two projects, the educational project and the archival preservation project, have converged into our fairly new Moxium. I love that word. (laughs) Which opened in downtown Asheville in May of 2019. That's so exciting. Yes. And to date, we have welcomed almost 20,000 people to the Moxium, which is stunning considering it's a small space. It's 1,400 square feet, but it's packed with really cool custom interactive exhibits. But we were also closed for five months during COVID as were most museums. And then this year, we were also closed in January and February because we actually were able to expand the Moxium a little bit, but we had to close for construction. So even with those closures, we've been able to welcome 20,000 visitors, almost 20,000 visitors from all over the world. Wow, that's that's amazing, especially given the fact that you had to close for two completely different circumstances, but amazing. Yeah. If I'm in Asheville, I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> Please do. Let me know. I'll give you a little tour. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone wanted to be, I like to say, become Michelle, what are the main skills and experiences they want to build up to one day run a foundation or a similar organization? One is being extremely organized, having highly honed interpersonal skills. This is really, really important because it's the very core of your work. You're constantly relating to different stakeholders, whether it's your staff, your board, your donors, your community partners. Everything is about relationships. Having well-developed writing skills is also really important. Again, just the communication that goes on every day that's so important, whether it's, you know, emails or reports, these kind of things are absolutely central to your work. And then I would say you need a super strong work ethic. There were times that I was working almost 100 hours a week. Wow. That's not normal and nor is it healthy. I recognize that now. Like when I was applying for huge grants, it was when I was running the foundation essentially by myself. But it's more than a 40 hour a week job. You have to be realistic about that. And even now, I'm still 16 years in with a absolutely wonderful, dedicated, hardworking staff. I I still find myself working 50 and 60 hours a week and sometimes more. So you have to really be able to commit yourself to it. And the other thing is something we've touched on already, and that is you need absolute commitment and perseverance because starting a nonprofit may not be too difficult. Maintaining a nonprofit growing a nonprofit, getting a nonprofit to a point where it's sustainable, that is challenging. And you have to understand that there are going to be great joys and there are also going to be, you know, times where it's extremely challenging and you have to have a lot of resolve for that. Great points. Yeah. Also passion. You should be passionate about the organization that you want to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. That will certainly drive everything. And I know it has certainly informed so much of my work and how I approach my work. That's amazing. I love how you talk about like the perseverance and 
being in tune with yourself and knowing what you're getting yourself into. Cause sometimes it might be a little blind for people like, Oh, I can do this. This is easy. And then they walk in and they're like, Oh, <laughs> never mind." So, yeah, I think that if anyone wanted to start a nonprofit, they should definitely do some research into what is required because you think, okay, I'm going to start a nonprofit. I'm going to sit here at my desk and I'm going to figure it out. Well, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a board of directors. So that automatically means you've got those relationships to maintain and you have to be extremely careful how you structure your board of directors because they're your bosses and they can make a big difference one way or another. Yeah. So definitely some research and talking to other executive directors, I think is really important too. Oh yeah, networking. Yeah, yeah. Is the Bob Moak Foundation a 501c3? Yes, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between a 501c3 and what a 501c6 is, which is a nonprofit versus a not-for-profit? So my understanding is that a 501c6 um, serves members. Right. So, for example, NAM would be an example of a 501c6. A 501c3 serves a broader population with the public. It's a public charity. Yeah. And very often a 501c6 is then, of course, supported by its members Whereas a 501c3 is supported by the public, the broader public. Yeah. Just a little fun fact to throw in there. Yes. The listeners. All these intricacies in the nonprofit world. Exactly. (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) So I want to talk about what it was like for you to discover who your father was and why preserving his legacy became part of your story. because. We'll touch on this a little bit later, but you mentioned before that your dad separated his work life from his family life. He did. He hardly ever talked about work, um, at least in the time that I knew him. I have an older sister who's seven years older than I am and an older sister who's five years older than I am. And they have a kind of different set of memories. They were the ones who were brought to the Emerson Lake and Palmer concerts. And <laughs> and my younger brother and I were left home because we were too little. So they do have some different memories. But for the most part, we did not talk about my father's work around the dinner table, for example. We talked about everything else. but And he almost never involved us in anything work-related. The first time I can really remember being involved in something work-related with him was when I was 21. I went to NAM with him for the first time. <laughs> Look at that. Oh boy, that was an eye-opener. You know, you go from hanging out with your dad, who's like this quiet, serious, quirky, geeky dude who you really respect, who at home walks around in like his Sears robot carpenter jeans that are two inches too short, and his... <laughs> which he pulls up above his belly button when he wears them, you know, with a button-down, worn-out flannel shirt with a pocket stuffed full of pens. And (laughs) and you go to Nam, and there were people who were actually, like, down on their knees in front of him. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I had a total out-of-body experience. And Dad was so uncomfortable because he was very humble and didn't like the attention, per se. But anyhow. It's like... Who are you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was 
Actually, I should rescind that. That was the second time I feel like we were involved in my dad's work or that I came to realize who Bob Moog was. The first time was actually, I think it was 1973. He goes on to tell the truth. Now, you're quite a bit younger than I am. I don't know if you remember that game show. I know. I know of the game show. Yes. So... He was on to tell the truth and we were not allowed to watch very much TV in my house, but boy, my mom sat us down for the, to tell the truth. And we're all like, what's going on? And there's, there's dad. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, what, what, what? And he was in a, like a three piece blue suit. It's like, wow, this is super strange. What is happening? It's, it was a lot for my five-year-old brain to process. That's so funny. So for the most part, dad was very quiet about his work. Of course, we all knew the essentials because we would get asked about it in school all the time. Did your dad invent the Moog synthesizer? So that's about all we knew. Dad invented the Moog synthesizer. And we knew that that caused a revolution in the face of music, although it was never really phrased that way in our house. But I think what we never fully absorbed is the level of inspiration that he cultivated around the world. And that was really, as I mentioned, seeing all these testimonials when he was sick and when he passed away. I forgot to mention the day he passed away, 20,000 people logged onto that site Wow! in one day. Wow. And we were just blown away. And you know, when you see something like that, for me, it was an entire shift. I really liked my little gift store. It was, it was very artful. It was an expression of who I was. I had all these great customers. I'm a pretty social person. So it was fun. It changed constantly. You know, there are all kinds of things I liked about it. And I looked at those testimonials and all of a sudden realized that I had more important work to do. There was more important work to do that those people from the Carrying Bridge, they provided us with an imperative to carry this legacy forward. If you think about an average person's life, how many chances do you get to carry on a legacy that will continue to inspire people for decades? Mm -hmm. One chance. So I grabbed it. I was not imminently qualified in a traditional sense, I think in an untraditional un- un- sense, perhaps I was. I had some of the, you know, soft skills like the commitment, perseverance, passion. I became a very good writer and I developed my interpersonal skills on the way up the steep learning curve. But to me, this was not a choice. This was some kind of beautiful gift from the universe that allowed me to do something that Aside from being a wife to a wonderful spouse and the mother of my children, it's the most meaningful thing that I've ever experienced. That was so beautifully said. I'm trying to process what you said because you're right. Like I like to believe that the universe has your back and the things are supposed to happen for a reason. You might not see it in the moment, but when you look back, you see that things happen to help guide you and get you to a specific place in your life. And you said that you didn't have a choice. Did you go back and forth with the idea of preserving this legacy? Or was it just an immediate, like, no, we're I'm doing this. Like, no, looking back, like, let's full speed ahead. Well, you know, it did start with my brother's idea right. for the foundation. He started it. Then, you know, after about a month after my dad passed away, when we had all gathered ourselves, because his 
from time of diagnosis to his passing was three months and three weeks. It was all pretty swift. It was very intense, very intense. And so it took us kind of a month to recuperate and we got back together. It was our family and we were trying to decide. (laughs) We had to start from the top. What's the name? Right. What's our mission? And I mean, we were all over the board. One sister wanted to bring synthesizers to Africa because she had been in the Peace Corps there. Uh, You know, another one thought it should just be about brain cancer. Another one thought it should just be about social justice because my dad was big into social justice. Mm. And all of those, of course, are really worthy. But I said to them, you know, if we're really going to use dad's legacy as this beautiful vehicle to continue to inspire people, then it should probably be based in electronic music. And they, you know, finally came around and saw that that was indeed the case. You know, I wish we could also be serving these other goals as well. But, you know, we started out with almost no resources. I think different people had donated to the foundation when dad passed away and we started with $15,000. That was all the money we had. I mean, some people are under this notion that my father was a millionaire, which is absolutely not true. He was broke a lot of his life or middle income, the rest of it. At best, we had to decide what the mission was. We had to decide what the projects were. Um, And there was a lot of back and forth about that. And it's at that point, my brother said, you know, I actually, I don't think I have time for this. He's a very busy guy. So that's when he kind of handed it over and I took it and ran with it. I'm I'm really excited about this next question because this hit me when I watched your TED talk that you did. And I like how you started that TED talk of people referring to you as Bob Moog's daughter. And you're like, what is, who is Bob Moog's daughter? Like, I thought that was really beautiful. But in an industry that is fueled by older generations starting businesses and retail stores and other manufacturing companies, obviously your case, your dad invented the Moog synthesizer. The generations below often have this sense of responsibility to live up to that legacy, even if we don't necessarily ask for it. You mentioned earlier that he was adamant about creating a life so that his children could have their own identity away from him. So do you think that worked? And does any of that pressure or responsibility show up for you now? Well, I do think it worked. Um, I think it's one of the reasons he didn't talk about his job that much is because he really wanted us to find our own way in what we were truly interested in, you know, and as a result, one sister is a social worker. One sister was in the Peace Corps and became, she's a very skilled photojournalist. And my brother is a very successful businessman. You know, I wanted to be an attorney and then wound up moving to West Africa and doing other things, becoming a small business owner and the mother of two children. So I don't think any of us then felt any pressure to follow dad's footsteps. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, there's a certain psychology, I think, a subconscious psychology amongst our family and perhaps in other families of inventors where it was kind of like, you know what? Dad is so good at what he does. We're just going to we're just going to let him do that. You know, it's just like, 
you know, I don't you know that we have that. Right. <laughs> I'll and, go do this. <laughs> right. I, I will also say that none of us were as strong at math and science as he was. So it's not like we had the natural academic tendencies that he did. Our, our academic tendencies were a bit different. So I think he and my mom absolutely provided an environment where we could be ourselves, without a doubt. And I thank them for that. There was absolutely no pressure in that regard. Now things shift when you decide, I'm going to start an organization called the Bob Moog Foundation. That'll do it. (laughs) Yep. In full realization of the enormity of that legacy. Now we started it because Bob Moog had inspired so many people. So that's one part of the legacy. Another part of the legacy is technical brilliance. Another part of the legacy is that Bob Moog was humble. He was inclusive. He had a lot of relationships in the industry. He was very giving with his ideas. So I feel like he left dauntingly big shoes to try to maybe not fill but follow. Mm. And that is both a little scary and incredibly exciting. You know, I like to say Bob Mo left this golden path mm. and I'm just following it. It's a lot to live up to, to even tr- attempt to live up to to an organization called the Bob Moog Foundation. Right. And we really strive to imbue his spirit, the way his worldview, his professional view into his human view mm-hmm. into the foundation every single day. Do you have any advice for family businesses or musical families that are in similar situations on how you dealt with the enormity of those shoes to fill in a sense? Well, I would say first, just to trust yourself. You did, you may not have known your relative the way the industry did, but because you weren't part of the industry, but you knew them in another way, you knew who they really were. And that's, that's a lot of what you carry with you into, you know, kind of following in their footsteps. That's, it's that integrity, right? You want to carry that integrity forward. So trust yourself that you understand the integrity of your family member. But the other thing I would say is don't be afraid to ask for help. I've gotten so much help and so much guidance from people who knew my father professionally, who understand things technically when I don't. Mm. I used to be very embarrassed that I did not understand synthesis nearly to the level that he did. I really understand compared to him, just the surface of it. But then what's happened is that's actually been a gift because for example, when we're creating exhibits at the Moxeum, I can instruct the exhibit designers, no, 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 you're getting out way in front of us. For the layperson, we need to break it down to this, this, and this. For all you synth geeks, you're already up here. We want something for synth geeks, but this is for everyone else too. This is the stuff I've been wondering about my whole life. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I know I know what people don't understand because I don't understand it myself. 
So I think asking for help, asking for help in understanding the legacy that the family member left through the eyes of the people in the industry is really helpful mm. um, because it helps complete that person for you. You knew them personally. Maybe you knew them a little professionally. You probably did not know them professionally as much as some of their colleagues in the industry. Right. So that's been really important for me too, is don't be afraid to ask for help. Not only to understand your family members and your family's place in the industry, but about lots of other topics too. Right. There are a lot, there are so many amazing, incredibly bright, creative, giving people in this industry. I owe a debt of gratitude to so many people. I I may run the Bob Moog Foundation, but boy, I did not do it alone. Um, it took a village to raise this foundation. Mm -hmm. I just happened to be at the forefront of it. I love your spirit. It's, it's infectious. I love it. Oh, thank you. So going back to this idea of having your own identity and now that you're actively keeping his legacy alive through the foundation, how has being a woman impacted your experience in the industry? If it has at all, have there been any challenges? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if there weren't, this podcast wouldn't exist. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. This is a male dominated industry. And there have been times when I have felt and obviously been overlooked or excluded from um, a conversation of one sort or another mm. because A, I was a woman. B, I wasn't um, part of the industry in the way other people are part of the industry. So I'll give you an example. One of my dearest friends and great supporter of the Bob Moog Foundation, very early on kind of took me around Nam and introduced me to his colleagues and peers. And he had worked for one or two synthesizer companies at that point, designing synthesizers. So he knew tons of people. So he introduced me to another guy and he's like, this, and this is Michelle Moog Kusa. And the guy looks at me and kind of, you know, shakes my hand and essentially dismisses me after that and then goes right back, doesn't follow up, doesn't say, well, how do you know so-and-so or what do you do? Or, and, you know, he, he goes right back to talking to my friend. Oh, my god! Essentially as if I did not exist. And then my friend caught what was going on and said, Michelle is Bob Moog's daughter. And the guy's like, oh, my God, you're <laughs> kidding. Wow. And then he got totally engaged. And I just had this moment of like, well, wait a minute. I am still the same person you dismissed like 10 seconds ago. So is it now I'm worthy of some kind of consideration because I'm somebody's daughter? And that was a very telling moment for me. I'm lucky in that that's the Trump card that I have in my back pocket, not the political Trump card, the other kind of Trump yeah. card, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that gets people's attention. But I do feel sometimes that women in this industry are overlooked. And I have noted 
many times that when I am with two or more men from the industry and we get together, they wind up just talking to each other about industry stuff. Mm. And I just sit there and listen. And I try to learn. Once or twice, one of them has caught what was going on. One of my close friends was actually very disturbed by how easily it was to totally dismiss me amongst five guys from the industry because they would just talk amongst themselves. And I was, you know, like a little fly on the wall. A sponge soaking up all the information. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Trying to log in my head every modification every one of them had made to all of their synthesizers. So, you know, I have learned that I have actually structured meetings so that I'm only one-on-one with a male counterpart. And when I've had another male ask to join, I often try to deflect because I know how the conversations go one-on-one and how they go two-on-one. And it's very, very different. So if I really want to connect with one of them about whatever the matter at hand might be, it's better to do it one-on-one. Otherwise, the attention goes right to the other male. That's a really interesting tactic. Wow. And it worked. It does work because when I'm one-on-one, they're fully engaged. Right. And they know that we're there to talk about something else. Then, you know, in 1983, this cool preamp came out and, you know, then they used it in their studio with... (laughs) These are the kind of conversations that get involved in a bunch of music and audio nerds. And I love them. I love them all. And I have learned so much from them. But if I want to have any kind of meaningful conversation, it's better to have it one-on-one. Because otherwise you get excluded. Right. Do you have any other advice specifically for young women entering the industry today? Just bring your strength and your confidence. Be prepared and don't be discouraged. Don't allow yourself to be discouraged. It takes a little while to gain some credibility. And, you know, after that, people will begin to take notice. Don't give up. Don't give up. <laughs> yep. It's, it's so true. And, you know, I recently bought a magnet. It says, keep going. And then underneath it says, Winston Churchill. Mm. It's like, that's right. It's my man, Winston. Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. Don't let the bomb stop you. Just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to wrap this up, how can people get involved with the foundation if they are interested? Well, we have two websites, moogfoundation.org and moogzeum.org. And they can check out our websites, kind of read more of what we're all about. They can get in touch with us to volunteer. They can donate archival items to the Bob Moog Foundation archives. They can do things like donate music to us that we will sell on Bandcamp to help raise funding. Mm. Of course, making financial donations is always king for any nonprofit. (laughs) It's not just we need money. What people have to understand is... If you want to empower a nonprofit, if you want to fuel their work, then resources are our fuel. Human resources, financial resources. And of course, human resources usually take financial resources to obtain in one way or another. So donations are extremely powerful. 
We also have an online store full of all kinds of cool merchandise. People can go on the online store and purchase merchandise and all of the proceeds go to benefit our projects. We're also always on the lookout for new members of our board of directors and even our board of advisors. So if someone's interested, they can write us at info at moogfoundation.org. We have a campaign called Captains of Industry for people who are part of the music technology industry and companies who are part of the music technology industry that want to make a meaningful impact by pledging $5,000 a year to the foundation for three years. We currently have 14 people and companies who are helping us with that, and we're trying to build up to at least 20. So people can be involved that way too. It's amazing. So there are there are lots of ways to be involved. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. People can follow us there and see what we're working on. We have an e-newsletter that people can sign up for at the bottom of our homepage of our websites. I encourage people to do that because we send out e-newsletters every two weeks. And if you're in Asheville, North Carolina, come visit the Moxium. There's also a chance to see what we're all about. And you can go on our YouTube channel too. You can see some wonderful videos of Dr. Bob's Sound School in action, seeing little kids being inspired by interactive multisensory experiences that excite them not only about sound and science, but the process of discovery and thinking outside of the box. So there are lots of ways to engage. We are a small but mighty organization that's very rich well of work that we have produced and we are sharing with the world. I love it. I will put all those links in the description of the podcast episode so people can click there as well. Okay, Um, great. That's great. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. You are so inspiring. Your story is just incredible. Um, And I'm so grateful that I got the chance to speak with you today and have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and it is really a pleasure and an honor, not only to carry on Bob Moog's legacy, but to be part of the music technology industry. I, I am humbled and grateful for this community. Thanks, Michelle. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Revoicing the Future. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major streaming platforms or visit our website. Be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Women of NAM. This episode was co-produced and edited by Natalie Morrison, Stephanie Lavand, and Julia Olson. Together, we can help shape the future of our industry one interval at a time. See you next time.